as we are going to continue with our sermon series focusing on the book of Deuteronomy, um, which has evolved in a manner of speaking into a sermon series through the Ten Commandments. Uh, This is because as we have come to the book of Deuteronomy, we we recognize very clearly that there are um, a couple of patterns that have been built in, arcs that have been going through Deuteronomy. One of those arcs is the idea that regardless of what the people do, regardless of how they fail God, God's promise will be true and good over them, that he will bring forward the promises that he has made. That means the giving of the land to the people of God. No matter how they fail, God's promise will be true. And second to that is Moses explaining the law to them. That law that he says that he is going to explain in chapter 1, we have been focusing on specifically as the Ten Commandments. And it has been the idea of this sermon series that the Ten Commandments then are explained as we go throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And today we come to the Sixth Commandment which as we read it in Deuteronomy 5, says this. In verse 17, very shortly, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. It is probably, I don't think I'm exaggerating here, the easiest command to fulfill. Uh, There are very few of you who have ever even been tempted in this way. Sure, sure, that guy who took the last donut out of the box was really asking for it. But you held firm and you didn't murder him. And we were all thankful for it. It isn't something that you were tempted with all the time. You're tempted with almost everything else on the list. All of those Ten Commandments have a pull on people, some stronger, some weaker, but they're, they're typically pulls for those things. But murder seems to be one thing that we can really keep ourselves pure from so much so that when you talk to people and you ask them, why should you go to heaven? This is like their number one goal. I have fulfilled the sixth commandment. I didn't murder anyone. Therefore, I'm a good person. Like that is the lowest bar to ever be set. You can't limbo under that bar. That bar is incredibly low. So it's an easy commandment to fulfill. We know that it's easy. We see this in movies all the time, right? We cannot murder people. We have villains portrayed where they're caught off guard and someone's holding a gun who is an innocent little dove and they're holding a gun looking at the murderer who's going to murder them unless they shoot them and he says to them with full confidence, I don't think you've got it in you, right? It's actually harder to kill someone than it is to murder. It's just easy. But certainly as we come to the commandment, we should know that there's more to the commandment than just don't murder. Murder is a horrid offense. Biblically speaking, we have a good reason to understand why murder is such a horrid offense. In the beginning, God creates man, and he specifically creates man in his image. He sets aside man as being created in his image. By the time we run through the fall and the the chapters that occur after the fall, 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Genesis, we find out that sin has so corrupted mankind that even by the beginning of chapter 6, God is already to the point where he is fed up and he is going to bring destruction upon the earth in terms of a flood. And in 6.11, he gives the reasons why the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. The murder of Cain and Abel, or the murder of Abel by Cain, was not anymore an isolated event. Blood was being spilt all over the earth. And so God came and destroyed the earth with a flood. Important in that then is in chapter 9, when he puts Noah on dry land, he gives these very important words in 9, chapter, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds 
the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for. So what is the reason why we are to take seriously murder? Why is it not okay to spill man's blood? Why can we spill the blood of goats and rams? Why can we spill the blood of animals, but why can we not spill man's blood? He says, for God made man in his own image. It is a striking out at the very image of God. It is not just killing a person. It is an attempt, even if you don't realize it, to kill the very image of God that you see in that person. So as we come to Deuteronomy, it is no surprise that we are not allowed to murder people. We realize that we aren't allowed to murder people, but Moses goes to explain the fullness of what that means. It's not just about not taking life, but to put more positively, it's about loving life. In Deuteronomy 19, we read the first 10 verses. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide them into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I have commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these, lest innocent blood be shed on your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. The first thing we are going to have to do if we are going to be a people who exist by the commandment of God to not murder in a positive sense, to love life, is we must always protect the innocent. We must protect the innocent. Here it is simply a man who has done an accident. It wasn't his fault. The example that he gives is really beautiful when God does this. I don't have to think up applications or illustrations. He has provided one for us here. You go out to cut down some trees with your friend, and purely by random chance, the axe head falls off when you are swinging it forward, and it flies off, and it hits him, and he dies. He has provided then for you three cities nearby, three cities in every territory that you own so that you can run there. And that city is there specifically to protect you until innocence or guilt is determined. So that the family members who find out about it and who in their anger and their frustration and their upsetness try to come after you to kill you so that they can feel as though they have avenged the the blood of their loved one so that they can't kill you. Notice that it's set up both for the man to escape there and it is also set up 
for the people who pursued them. In verse 10, it says, lest innocent blood be shed. It is not just to keep you from getting killed when an accident happens. It's to keep other people from committing murder upon you when that happens. We are always to protect the innocent. Going on in chapter 19, we find that this, again, is sort of repeated, although in a separate setting. In verse 15, we read this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for foot. We know that last verse really well, right? This sums up everything we know about the Old Testament law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But realize the context in which that is said is a context of preventing the butchering of the innocent. It is said in a context to watch over the innocent. So you can't just bring forward a false witness and testify against somebody and have their hand cut off or have their teeth knocked out, or have their eyes gouged out, or even worse, to stone them to death. No, on the account of two or three witnesses, and the judges have to be very careful. Just as we read last week, judges cannot take a bribe. They cannot pervert justice in any way. They are to diligently inspect the witnesses to make sure that the case brought before them is true and right and good. There is diligence here. We think in America, that you are innocent until proven guilty. That's not an American tradition. That is a biblical tradition. You are always innocent until proven guilty. And by providing those measures for people, providing someone who is innocent a way to escape and flee from those who seek his life, to prevent them from killing others, to prevent people from attacking maliciously, God has built into his law protection for the innocent. We are a nation who upholds this. We think you are innocent until you are proven guilty. Except in certain circumstances. Certainly on Mother's Day, it is ironic, not in a fun way, to speak of abortion. Where the innocent, those not, not even talking about whether people are morally pure, but innocent in terms of deserving life or death are snuffed out from among us. Depending on the studies that you listen to, the CDC from 2013 said there's about 664,000 legal, legal abortions done in our country, which amounts to about one every 47 seconds. I made it look like I did that math in my head. I didn't. If you listen to the Guttmacher Institute, that number is significantly higher. It's not 664,000. It is rather 958,000. That is an abortion every 33 seconds. 
These abortions are sometimes early term, they are sometimes late term, but in every single case, there is a snuffing out of life that did nothing to deserve that being snuffed out. Scripture would call these people who have done neither good nor evil. They are innocent of the charges that have been brought against them. We, specifically, are to be people who protect the innocent. This is not a call for America to wise up about it. It's not a call for us to go down and picket Planned Parenthood. It's a call for us to realize that it is our duty to protect the innocent. There will always be people who prey on the innocent. There will always be people who do that. It is our job as the church. It is our job as God's people. Specifically, because we are commanded to not murder, we are committed then to protecting the innocent and keeping murder from occurring. So we work. Beacon of Hope, which is a a birth care provider, recently has announced that they're moving into Saginaw directly across, I think, next to the only abortion provider in Saginaw County. We ought to fully support that ministry and what they do. For they are keeping people and they are educating people and they are seeking out women who think that this is the option for them. They are actively protecting the innocent, which is what we are called to do. We are not just called to protect the innocent, though we are also called to prevent unintended casualties. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we read this. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. God says, when you go out for war, and I think that this is clearly an indication of after you take the land. He's already talked to his people. If you remember, Gad, Manasseh uh, are on the other side of the Jordan, and he has said, you absolutely do not get to sit this out. When your people go in, your brother's going to take their land, you are going in with them, okay? These provisions do not count for that. Brothers, you are fighting for them as they fought for you. But later on, you can tell it's later on because he talks about planting vineyards and, plant and, and founding houses and things like that, right? 
It starts with a quotation from the priest who says, don't be afraid, and it ends with a quotation of, don't be afraid. I truly believe that all the stuff in the middle is nothing but excuses. Is, is there any reason why you might be distracted from the task that God has appointed to you? Are you worried about the dedicating of your house? Are you worried about the vineyard you planted and being able to eat of the fruit of that vineyard? Are you worried about the wife that you might never get to enjoy the presence of? Then you need to leave now. Because if you stay and you are weak-hearted and you are faint, it isn't your life that we're worried about. We're worried about the lives of all of the men next to you. In other words, your fear can cause unintended casualties that we don't want. If they lose their lives, let it be on their own account, not on yours. It's funny, as I coach Little League, I have to continually instruct my catchers for their own good to stay in front of the ball. There's a natural, kids, catching is really hard, right? So the ball's coming in, people are swinging, you've got no idea what happens to the ball, and they naturally want to do one of two things. They want to stand up and flee, which they shouldn't do, or they want to turn to their side. The problem with doing that is all of the gear that is made to protect you only protects you when you're crouched down and standing in front of the ball. If you stand up, you expose yourself to being hit. Not only are you a larger target, but now you have areas of your body that are not covered by gear. If you turn to the side, you have areas of your body that are not covered by the gear. You need to be able to not have fear lest you hurt yourself. That is the same idea that's going on here. Don't be fearful lest you not only get yourself hurt or others. Certainly. We need to be careful when we speak about something like abortion that we understand that we are preventing unintended casualties as well. That when we speak about this, we are not just speaking about the salvation of those children. We are we are also speaking about the good of the women who have been lied to. It's very easy to get upset and to speak, especially in a sermon about murder, saying abortion is murder. We can rightfully think that it is and at the same time have compassion for women who are continually lied to by people who ought to know better. It is not, listen, those numbers, it's but a hint of the destruction that abortion has. It's not just the murders. That's a really simple way to portray it. Abortion destroys lives. Talk, not, not just Let's, let's expand it. Not just the children, not just the mothers who now have to live with the guilt of what they have done the rest of their lives. Knowing what it is that they have done. Knowing how it hardens their hearts. Listen to the people who provide it daily. Listen to them speak. Listen to the hardness of their hearts when they speak about performing abortions. There are Huge numbers of unintended consequences. To make it just about the children is wrong. It ought to be about the kids, but it's also about more than that. It is about caring not only for the children, but for the mothers and even, even 
for the souls of those who are so blinded by the world. They think that offering up children to a God of finance, a God of freedom, is an okay thing to do. These are unintended casualties that we often do not think of, but are important nevertheless. Third, we must punish the guilty. We must punish the guilty. Deuteronomy goes on. Moses writes, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones and the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. Thus shall you do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. It is clear that the people of Israel will be fighting a war, and they will be fighting other wars beyond that. He says, if you are going to attack a city, if you have a reason, by the way, this is not talking about the reason for the war. It's not talking about good reasons to go to war and bad reasons to go to war. It's just saying, if you go to war and you are going to besiege a city, the first thing that you do, you always do, is you send a peace offer into it. And if they accept your terms, then fine, you have your terms. But if they don't, you can devote every man in that town to destruction. But what you cannot do is touch the women and touch the children. The reason being, most likely, is that those people had absolutely nothing to do with the decision to go to war. It was totally out of their control. The men of the city, yeah, they had the choice. They had the responsibility to accept the peace offer or to decline it. They were guilty. The others were innocent. More than that, the cities that the peoples were going to inhabit We have talked about this. The reason why they were being driven out of the land is not because Israel was righteous and good, was not because God simply wanted to give Israel the land, but also because the people who lived there committed abominations that the Lord your God could not stand anymore. Israel was his appointed instrument to bring justice and judgment upon those people. Just last week, we read the chief of all of these was the giving of their children to the fire. They would burn their children alive as a service to their God. So God said, you kill all of them. Now, being careful, we again need to understand 
the theory, the idea, and the principle that's being applied here. It is not that everyone who is guilty deserves the sword. It is clearly that those who are most responsible for the most heinous acts deserve the sword. I would tell you that in our culture, that is not primarily the majority of the women who go in to have abortions. Again, they're being lied to constantly, day by day. They're being fed false information. They're being told that it's okay. They're being told that it's the responsible thing to do. They will sit there and counsel people and say, this is the responsible thing to do. They will talk to them about their own care of their own kids that they will soon put to death and say, this is better than the fate that you have offered to them. Recently, a Scandinavian country lauded the fact, lauded the fact that they have no Down syndrome kids born anymore. You know why that is? They butcher every single one of them. As soon as, as soon as they do the amniocentesis test or whatever other test, they probably don't do that anymore, they probably do other ones, but as soon as they do those tests, they find out, hey, there's, there's three chromosomes there for number 21. You probably shouldn't bring that child to term because think of the disastrous life they're going to have. It's better if they don't even start. The guilty are those responsible, not always those who do. Certainly from case to case, that is going to vary. But we cannot let them think that they can continue on without the justice of God coming upon them. There's two very clear things going on here. One is God's justice comes down upon a nation. It is both a warning against nations who would offer their young as sacrifices, saying that you will not escape God's judgment forever. Just as these Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, all the rest of them, thought that they could exist in the land without ever having trouble by offering their children to the fire, soon Israel was knocking on their door saying, judgment has come, and it will come, it will come for America as well. Make no doubt about it. And for all other countries who are willing to sacrifice their children. But it is also a command for us to find those who are ultimately responsible those who know better and neglect what they have taken an oath to do, to serve and to do no harm. By no means does this mean that we punish them outside of the rule of law. People bombing abortion clinics are stupid and hypocritical. We love life so much we're going to take the lives of other people. It does nothing. You're a murderer, just like the thing that you detest. We warn people about the punishment that will come to them. And we seek to change the laws that we might prosecute those who continue to warp human minds. Fourth, we pursue justice. Deuteronomy 21. If in the land that you, that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found who is slain lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. Then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled a yoke. 
And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their guilt may be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's a weird scenario. You, you go out into a field and you find that there's a man slain there. And so what you need to do is you need to triangulate and figure out what is the nearest city. There's this odd procedure. Levites are there. They don't seem to be doing anything terribly important other than being there to be a witness to what happens. They kill a heifer. They do not let its blood drain, which is the typical atonement work, but instead they simply sacrifice the bull near a stream of running water, although, again, there is no blood flowing, so it's not clear at all what the stream of running water is for. As a matter of fact, this passage is filled with questions. It is clear, though, that they are killing the bull, they're killing the heifer because of the death of someone else. And it's clear that the elders are to have no idea how this happened. This is an unsolved murder and one in which they reasonably understand will never be solved. They don't know why this person was murdered and he isn't just dead in the field. He was clearly slain. He was poked through, speared or something like that. There's no justice to be found in a situation like that. There's no justice here, really. Whoever has done this evil thing has gotten away with it. They, they get away scot-free. Under the judgment of God, certainly they will be brought to justice, but under the judgment of Israel, there is no justice to be found. Nevertheless, nevertheless, judges are called, a trial is arraigned, and a heifer dies. Why? It's a symbolic action showing, showing that they care about justice. Even when, even when no justice can be served, they are looking at God and they're saying, we care about justice. We care about doing what is right. We can't actually kill the person who is responsible for this, who deserves to die for what they've done. Nevertheless, that symbolic act is a real act because it depicts their sincere devotion to justice that they have to give up something that is precious and good to them in order to show that we care about justice. And even though we cannot find the person who has done this, we care and will continue to search for justice. That we will uphold justice at every turn that we can. It is a symbolic act, but it's not just symbolism. It's true. Listen. When it comes to Things like abortion, it's an uphill climb. We've lived with this stain over us for nearly 40 years now for it being legal. It is an atrocity, and we have made very little progress on. 
Those numbers are down, by the way. The 958,000 is significantly less than there would have been just 10, 15 years before that. There is progress being made in America, hearts and minds, if not legal protections that are being enacted. But we have a long way to go. But even if we lose in the courts, even if all of those very conservative judges that we want to see appointed turn out to not be conservative judges, which, by the way, everyone in here should be very clear, happens all the time. Reagan appointed some of the most liberal justices that sit on the bench today. Don't think that somehow signing on to a president, no matter how conservative he or she may think that they are, is a gateway to overturning all of this. It is not. Even if it takes years, we pursue. Even if the laws don't change, we pursue. We pursue what is good and what's right. Justice is not just handing out punishment. Justice is doing what is right. And so we pursue it in light of the lives of women. In public square, when we argue for it, we do it winsomely, we do it carefully, we don't demean people, we don't condemn people, but we lay out very clearly what we think is true and we pursue justice. We pursue what is right for them, what is right for their child. We pursue what is right. We do it not just legally, because that won't solve the problem. The problem is the lie. The problem is the death. Law doesn't fix those issues. Hearts and minds being changed to the gospel fix those issues. So, do not give up. Don't settle. Don't think that it is just status quo and therefore we have to continue in the path that our country has been down and that people in our country have been down. Don't think that you have lost the Spirit of God. It's mighty and powerful. Pursue justice. In all of these, it is important to remember that both abortion and the provision of abortions is never the unforgivable sin. Christ offers forgiveness to everybody. We rightly uphold that murder is wrong. But again, the reason why murder is wrong is because it's a direct attack upon the image of God. It is, in a sense, a direct attack upon God himself. He has placed his image in another human being, and you striking at that human being is striking at God. Unbelief is essentially that. It is not the act of committing murder, but you're living like that murder has already been committed. You're living like the image of God isn't present at all. Evolutionists have a huge problem. Why is it that we can keep ourselves from killing human beings, that we shouldn't kill other human beings, but we can kill chickens and we can kill goats? 
There's two ways and only two ways to go with that. One, chickens and goats, fleas and ticks and bacteria are no different fundamentally than you and me, and we shouldn't kill them at all. You want to grow meat in a lab, and that's great, but you shouldn't kill animals for it. That's one way. I have a sneaking suspicion that's never going to catch on. The other way is to start defining humanity and the reason why we don't think that we can kill one another based on, solely based on, what we want to define human beings as. And that is almost always a pragmatic definition. What can and what can't that person do? This is why it's okay to kill every Down syndrome kid in the womb because they will not be able to produce the same kind of life that you and I can produce. But listen, that logic, taken to its rightful extent, means that infanticide is perfectly okay. Butchering elderly people, perfectly okay. Easing of our healthcare system would help a lot if people with terminal illnesses would be done away with when we found out they had terminal illnesses. Evolutionists don't have a good answer for it. We do. The image of God is not given to plants. It is not given to animals. It's not in goats. It's not in rams. It's in human beings. 46 chromosomes. All of the same basic genetic code. Some formed differently than others. Some, because of the fallenness of the world, not fully capable of doing what we would think a normal human fully capable of, but nevertheless made in the image of God. But your unbelief is the same as murder. You live in a world where you hope and you think that there is no God. Why do we, why do we press for the end to abortion? It's not because we think that we're morally right and people should do what we tell them to do. It's not simply because we think that it's a disgusting practice that maybe if we were in another time and another place, we wouldn't find so detrimental to society. We think that it's wrong because God has made us in his image. And more than that, we think that it's wrong because in the gospel, Christ has taken fallen human beings with marred images of God and remade them. For those who believe are born again, and being born again remakes them in the image of God so that we can see clearly the things that the scripture teaches about the people of God and about those who reject God himself. We do not pursue justice. We don't protect the innocent. We don't prevent unintended casualties or punish the guilty simply because it is right for us to do so or because we think that we are morally superior to those that we want to punish. While it might be right for us to do so, we have a better reason because we know and understand the gospel, because we have the image of God remade in us and because we seek to uphold and honor that image to love what it loves and hate what it hates. We seek it because abortion is an affront to a holy, majestic, and loving God and because it always does more harm than good to every single person involved. Not just the children, but the moms and the providers to the politicians that support it, to on down to the 
the single person who thinks that it's okay, but I would never do it. We do it as an act of defiance against the God of this world. And most importantly, we do it as an act of worship before our God who said to us, you shall not murder. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind and good to us. And we are forcefully reminded today of our own iniquity before you. We do not seek the blood of people because we are better than them. We don't seek their blood, Father. We ask most fully that forgiveness might be extended to them, that they might understand the truth of the gospel, repent and believe, that we can accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ, full stop, prepared for heaven. We do not seek, Father, in the, f- in the first case, justice, but righteousness, your righteousness for them, an admittance of guilt, repentance before you. For we are not holy enough to demand their blood. For we ourselves need our blood shed for what we have done wrong. And we ourselves only find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So that is what we pray for. As we work, Father, by your Spirit, through your word, to protect those who are innocent, to prevent as much as we can unintended casualties from this atrocity, as we seek, Father, the guilty to be held accountable for that guilt, and above all, as we pursue justice, we do so in the gospel because it is what saves us. And anything else is not salvation. It is simply judgment. But we hope for better things. We pray that your spirit will be upon us to move us toward Jesus Christ, his glory and his beauty, that we might be people who imitate that when we speak of these things, that we can do so winsomely with love and care knowing, Father, that we ourselves face judgment and knowing that only in Christ we are forgiven. We ask for that not only for ourselves, for those whom we love, but we ask for that for our enemies as well. We pray for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.